Well, this year marked the 22nd anniversary of the 9-11 tragedy. And for those of you that were around during that time, you know what it was just a horrific time in our country, but there's a whole generation of people who weren't alive. And those would be my children. So we decided this year that we were going to watch kind of a documentary about 9-11 together, just so they knew the gravity of that day and what happened on that day. And we found a really great one. It was a five-part series, and uh, it showed all kinds of footage I had never seen before um, about 9-11, just what happened in the buildings, um, to the buildings, with people. It was um, very impactful. But one thing I walked away with that I thought was the most impactful was the stories they shared, they had these survival stories of people who made it out of the buildings, um, and they were super impactful. One was uh, telling me, telling us that she was running down one of the tower stairs and you know running for her life, basically, and there was a woman sitting on the stairs having trouble breathing. She was clearly struggling to breathe, and this woman had asthma, and she said, I have asthma and I do not have my inhaler. And the woman rushing down the stairs actually happened to have an inhaler in her purse. And so she gave it to that woman, and she was able to then get up and get out of the building. Uh, there was another man struggling to get out of the building as well. He was a double amputee and had two prosthetic legs, and people were bumping into him and rushing past, and yet these two other men stopped and each carried a side of him down dozens of flights of stairs. And then there was outside the building. There was just the absolute mayhem of just people bleeding and covered in dirt and dust and just in complete shock. And what you saw was people coming alongside one another and comforting one another and treating one another. There weren't enough paramedics to truly treat all these people at this time. And it was really kind of the silver lining of that day is the love that people showed one another, the caring. And then it lasted for a few weeks in our country how we all you know, came together. We can say that was the silver lining of that day. Well, for most of the world, it, it takes something like a 9-11 to get them outside their comfort zone to show that kind of love. But for Christians, that should not be so. For Christians, we should be characterized by our love. We should be known for our love. It shouldn't take an extenuating circumstance for us to get outside of our comfort zone and love another. In the book of James today, uh, we're going to be looking at how we need to live consistently with this authentic faith that we claim to have and be prepared to do the work that it's going to take to love others the way that God has loved us. So let's open our Bibles to James, uh, book, uh, James 2, verses 8 through 13. That was our study passage this week. And in our passage today, James continues to put that focus on that sin of showing partiality. We learned about that a few weeks ago. We learned that showing partiality means that we are making unfair judgments about people based on outer characteristics that we are uh, gravitating towards people, maybe because they, we have something to gain from being close to them or being friends with them, and he points out that this is sin. And he continues with this in our passage today, but he gives us a solution to this, and that's what we're going to be exploring today. James 2, verses, verses 8 through 13. If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. 
Now, James starts out by talking about this love your neighbor as yourself, and he refers to it as the royal law, uh, meaning it's, it's from a king, and we know that that's from God. This is God's law. Uh, God gave us this law to love because it's rooted in his character. It's who God is. It's not just a, a rule he throws out for us to follow. It is actually rooted in his character, and we're called to love God. If, we're, if we love God, we're called to love others because we've been loved by God. And this command to love your neighbor as yourself, uh, to this audience that James is speaking to, it wouldn't have been the first time they've heard it. Uh, they, they did hear this in the Old Testament. Moses gave this commandment in the book of Levit Leviticus. Uh, Moses was addressing the Israelites and giving them all these instructions on how not to treat people. And in Leviticus 19.18, he says, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. That means this is coming from God. It is not negotiable. It is to be followed. It is not optional. And then Jesus proclaims this over and over again in the Gospels, uh, and specifically in Matthew 22. In Matthew 22, Jesus is approached by a lawyer and is asked, what is the greatest commandment? In Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40, Jesus says this to him. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Loving God means that we will love others. It is direct evidence of our faith. It is direct evidence that we truly love God. And that commandment to love your neighbor as yourself, it, it kind of safely assumes that we do love ourselves, right? And we do. We love ourselves. And I know that's kind of gotten a, a bad rap these days, the self-love movement, right? Um, we've got the psychology community, and we've got the spiritual gurus saying you've got to love yourself, but that's not what we're talking about here today. Uh, this self-love is not a selfish love. It's not a love that puts yourself before others, often at the expense of others. What we're talking about today is a basic love of self. It's just wanting what is best for us. We want to be safe. We want to be fed. We want to be clothed. We want to have nice relationships, happy experiences in life. As one commentator put it, it's just a healthy, balanced view of self. And by this commandment, God is telling us that if we are to love others, we need to love others with that same enthusiasm and that same zeal that we love ourselves. But this is not going to be easy. I don't know if you've noticed, but it's really easy to love yourself. You don't have to try. You don't have to plan to do it. You just do it. But when it comes to other people, it's going to take some more work. So that's point number one. Work hard at showing love. Work hard at showing love. Well, let's read verse 8 again. Um, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. James is essentially telling us, after going through this sin of partiality, that this is the solution to showing partiality to others. This is the antidote. Uh, it's the thing that will make it impossible for favoritism and improper judgment to, to rear its ugly head in our lives. And he says you're doing well if you love this way. So that seems pretty simple, right? We just, we just have to love others. I mean, how easy could it be? But it's not because of the love that we're commanded to give. If you know in the Bible, there's four types of love in the Bible. We have uh, love for friends. We have uh, erotic love. 
and there's a familiar love, and then there's this love called agape love. And this is the love that we're called to here in this verse. This is the verb that is used, agapeo, in this verse. And so this love is the same love that God shows towards us. It's a sacrificial love. It's a love of the will. It's a choice to love. Uh, This is a love that is not based on feelings or emotions. Oftentimes it has to be absent of that. And that's what makes it hard. I mean, when you think about it, God didn't send Jesus down to the cross because he had the warm fuzzies about us. It had nothing to do with that. It was a choice that he chose to love us. We should be motivated as Christians, if we've been loved this way, to love others because of the love that we've received. Well, one of the best examples that we have in Scripture of what this looks like is the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I'm sure you're all familiar with the Good Samaritan, even people who've never cracked a Bible have heard of the Good Samaritan. I mean, he's a pretty popular guy out there. And this story's really well known, but we're gonna go through it today. Um, It's in Luke 10 in your Bibles. And again, this same lawyer, he's asking Jesus about what the greatest commandment is. And Jesus tells him to love God and to love his neighbor as himself. But then the lawyer follows up with this question. He says, but who is my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? Because in Old Testament times, when this command was given, it was understood that your neighbor was your fellow Israelite. There was kind of a community that this, this kind of, uh, that, that this pertained to. But Jesus, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, he expands this meaning. He expands the meaning of neighbor to mean anybody who crosses our path. So Luke 10, verses 30 through 35 is where you find the parable of the Good Samaritan. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came, when he saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set, set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. So after two religious men walk by this man and ignore him as he's bleeding in a ditch on the side of the road, the good Samaritan stops. And he stops because he has compassion on this man. He immediately alters his schedule, right? He was on a journey, probably had a plan that day. He probably had somewhere to be at some time, and yet he alters his schedule for this man. You know, we have no way of knowing if he was medically trained, so I'm gonna just venture to say he went out of his comfort zone to tend to this man's wounds. I mean, he's dealing with blood and pus and who knows what else, and tending to his wounds. He uses his resources, his, his horse or his mule, whatever he was riding on, and he transports this man somewhere safe. And then he sacrifices his own money to pay for the care of this man. And in the end, he expects nothing in return. And that is the model we are to follow if we want to love our neighbor as ourselves. You know, because how many of you wake up in the morning and you pray, God, I just want you to disrupt my day. I, I want all my plans to be thwarted. I want you to just throw a wrench in it. I want you to make me spend money I didn't budget for, right? We don't pray like that because we don't want to do that. But you know what? 
we do it for people already, and we may not be realizing it. If you're a mom in the room, okay, all the moms out there, you do this for your kids, don't you? I mean, if you're a mom, have you had one day that hasn't been disrupted? I mean, if you are, I want to meet you, <laughs> okay? I mean, you alter your schedule for your children. You get up in the middle of the night for your children. You change their dirty diapers. You clean up their vomit when they have the stomach flu. You, know, you spend money that you didn't budget for. I know that they put a handles in by our house, and it has been a budget buster ever since because it's, Mom, can we stop for ice cream? And I try to be fun mom and say yes most of the time. We do this for our kids, right? So we'll ask ourselves, do we love others as much as we love our kids? That might be a good litmus test. It's going to take work. It's going to take sacrifice. It's not always going to feel good. It's not always going to be comfortable. But we must love others this way. So how can we practically do this? How can we be like the Good Samaritan? Well, we need to start out by praying to love others, right? We learned that James was nicknamed Camel Knees because he spent so much time in prayer for other people that his knees were calloused over. And we need to do the same. We need to build up some calluses. We need to pray first that we can have more love for others. Pray that God would grow your heart to have compassion on people that cross your path. Pray to be more aware of the people that God has put in your path. Eliminate the distractions. Get off your phone. See who is around you, who needs you. Pray to grow in sacrifice, sacrifice of money, time, resources. And pray for God to just loosen your grip on your own priorities so that you can desire good things for others. We need to pray those things. We need to prepare our hearts first. Second thing we need to do is just to remember the golden rule, the good old golden rule, right? Matthew 7, 12 is where we find the golden rule in the Bible. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Jesus is saying here that this is basically love your neighbor as yourself. This is fulfilling the law. And this means we desire for what we desire for ourselves, we desire exactly for others in the exact way, in the exact quantity, in the exact quality. We should never give to others the generic version of what we demand the name brand for ourselves, so to speak, right? We should rejoice when others rejoice. We should be happy for other people. This is a way that we can love others as ourselves. Let's just say that you're a young mom and growing family and you live in a one-bedroom apartment. And your best friend is also a young mom, growing family, and she also lives in a one-bedroom apartment. And you both have been praying for one another to save up enough money to buy a bigger place for your growing family. And you've been praying together and praying for one another, and your husband comes home one day, and he says, you know what? The car broke down for the last time. We're just going to have to buy a new car. I'm going to have to take some of that money we've been saving and buy a new car. So we're not going to be able to put a down payment anytime soon on a house. And then that same night, your friend calls and says, guess what? We're in escrow. What are you going to do, right? Ask yourself, whatever I would wish people to do to me, I would do to them. Now, would you rather your friend pull away and wallow in her jealousy and envy, or would you rather her rejoice with you? We'd rather her rejoice with us, right? And so we need to do the same. We need to rejoice with people who rejoice. We need to be truly joyful and happy for others. That's a way that we can love others as ourselves. We're going to apply the golden rule. We have to apply it all the way and not look for loopholes uh, to make it easier, okay? It's not gonna be easier, it's gonna be hard. 
All right, that's hard enough. But what about those people who've wronged us? Didn't Jesus say we are to love our enemies? Well, he did, didn't he? What about the people who've hurt us that aren't sorry? What about the person at work who's just out to get you? Or the neighbor who's just constantly causing trouble? (laughs) Or those politicians? I mean, they are making our lives so hard, and they love everything that God hates. How do we love these people? How is that possible? Well, there's two types of enemies you're going to have in your life. You're going to have enemies near, and you're going to have enemies far. You're going to have the enemies that you don't know, right? Someone like a politician who's affecting your life, but you may never cross paths with. And then you're going to have an enemy that you do have to interact with daily. But with both of them, you need to start by preparing your heart. And you do that, again, with prayer, okay? We're building calluses up today, ladies. We're going to be praying for our enemies because Matthew 5, verses 44 through 45, Jesus says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. But what do we pray? I mean, do we, do we pray for their demise or for them to get a good taste of their own medicine? I don't think that's what Jesus was saying here. We pray for them to see their sin, for that veil to be lifted. They are a Christian. We can pray for conviction. Pray for God to show mercy on them as he has shown you. That is how we pray for our enemies. And it's not easy, and I can speak firsthand about this. Because I have someone in my life who I have never met and probably will never meet who did something that absolutely rocked my world for a few years. I mean, turned it upside down. It was just pure evil. And every time I would picture this person uh, in my head, it was like a Jerry Springer episode uh, where I was basically pummeling this person to death, right? Not good. And through counseling, I was told, that's not right. And I said, I know, I know. So I was told in counseling, you need to start praying for this person. I mean, it was like the worst homework assignment ever. But I did it. I went home and I put this person on my prayer list. And they were on Thursdays. I'll never forget person was on my Thursday prayer list. And in the beginning, I would be anxious about praying on Thursday come like Tuesday. On Tuesday, as I was praying, I'd be like looking ahead to Thursday, like, oh, it's coming, you know, and it was just, it's just awful. And then Thursday would come and I would just, my, my jaw would be clenched and I would be, you know, praying what I'm supposed to be praying for this person, but there weren't any feelings there. And it just, you know, it was hard. But as the weeks went on, I noticed Uh, the anxiety started to wane. Thursday would pop up, and it's like, oh, oh, I have to pray for this person. Okay. And then sooner or later, I realized I started to have compassion on this person because I realized they never would have done what they did if they knew Jesus. They don't know Jesus. They're in the dark. They're living in darkness. And how sad is that? And I began to have compassion for this person. And because of that, If and when I ever meet this person, if they were to walk through this door right now, I can tell you with all confidence, I could be civil and kind to this person. I don't have to be best friends with them, but I could at least be civil and kind. And that's what preparing our hearts in prayer can do. Now, if we do cross paths with our people that we uh, are hard to love, so to speak, Romans 12 verses 20 through 21 has some advice. Romans 12, 28 to 21 says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will keep burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with the good. 
right? We don't have to be best friends with our enemies, but we have to be kind. And it could start out as simple as simple as a simple like, hello, good morning, with a smile, right? Uh, offering to just help with something, do a favor. Maybe you bought too many onions at Costco. So you say, would you, would you like some? You know, I'll never eat all these. Would you like some onions? I don't know. Something kind like that, right? I buy too many onions at Costco, obviously. I give them away all the time. Your enemy's going to start to wonder, why is this person being kind to me? I am not kind to them. And Lord willing, their heart will soften in time, if it's the will of God. There are people that are hard to love out there. But Luke 6.32 says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. Anyone you meet on the street, anyone can love when somebody that loves them. That's the easiest thing to do. But to love your enemy, I mean, that's something that makes you stand out. And as Christians, that's what we're called to do. We've been called out of this world. We're going to look different. And one way we're going to look different is that we're going to love those that are hard to love. We say we have authentic faith. We will work hard to do it. Well, if we're loving our neighbors as ourselves, we need to see the opposite as sin, which James says is showing partiality, right? Verse 9 says, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. And that word transgressor, it means violator means you've crossed a line. It's like looking at that you know, chain link fence with the no trespassing sign and you have climbed over it, right? God sees the sin of partiality as a big deal because it violates his law of love. And it violates the biggest law that fulfills all laws. Verses 10 through 11 in our passage reads this. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. God is serious about his law, and we need to be serious about it as well. If we love God, we're gonna work hard to love others, but we're also gonna work hard to obey God. So that's point number two, work hard at obeying God. Work hard at obeying God. Well, as we see in our passage this week, God takes sin seriously, and we need to, too. We need to take our obedience seriously so we can avoid sinning against God. I mean, if you've had children, you see that obedience doesn't come easily, right? Um, how many of you taught your kid to run in the other direction when you say, come here, right? No. Obedience has to be taught, okay? It has to be um, re re repeated. It's through repetition. It's through consequence. Uh, but, it, but it takes hard work. Uh, and this is true for us as well. I know we'd like to think that as an adult, you know, we're not childlike anymore, but obedience is something that we still have to work hard at doing. James 2.10 says, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point has become guilty of all of it. I remember the first time I read that verse, I was like, wow, you know, that's like, that's heavy. And my son, when he was in Awana, my firstborn son, uh, we did Awana for the first time. Uh, they, they put all these, these verses to music. I don't know if you guys have heard, your parents out there, I'm sure you know it, the Sparks CD, right? And on the Sparks CD, they have this verse, James 2.10, and I remember memorizing it with him, and I was like, the music they put this to is just way too upbeat for how, like, weighty this verse is. I mean, it was like this jazzy tune. It was like, for whoever keeps the whole law, you know, and it was just like, I just feel like it had to be a little more somber because, I mean, verse 10 speaks to God's perfect standard. 
and how transgressing even one law brands us guilty before him. I mean, that's, that's serious stuff. We, on the other hand, can be tempted to put sins in different bins. We have the big sin bin, and then we have like the little sin bin, right? And yes, it is clear in the Bible that sins will be punished differently. Certain sins will be punished more harshly than other sins. The fact is that all sin is punished. Every single sin is punished, no matter how big or small. But for the believer, Christ took on that punishment for us. Praise God for that. But for the non-believer, they will incur that punishment. So it's important to remember that your smallest sin put Jesus on the cross. Your smallest sin put him up there. Verse 11 says, For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. When we look at the Ten Commandments, and we look at things like do not steal, do not murder, do not commit adultery, it can be easy to kind of pat ourselves on the back and say, well, I'm not doing too bad. I haven't done any of those things. But if we look at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gave in Matthew 5, we will see that he did a deep dive into these commandments. And he really challenges us to examine our hearts at the least common denominator level. Matthew 5, verses 21 through 22, he speaks of murder. This is what he says of murder. You have heard that it was said to, said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to counsel, and whoever says you fool will be liable to hell of fire. Then he says this about adultery. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with a lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I mean, imagine being in that audience. And before that day thinking, you know, you're a sinner if you kill somebody or you physically are unfaithful to a spouse. But now hearing that anger and lust are equal to those things. I mean, no one is innocent, right? Not one. Now that point making that's made in James 2.10 really comes to light. If we can transgress even one law, we're guilty of all of it. Because even partial obedience is disobedience. It makes us a transgressor. So how can we practically uh, work hard at obeying God? Uh, well, a great place to start, actually the place we need to start, is to start with a clean slate. Okay? We cannot be intentional about obedience if we have areas of unconfessed disobedience that needs to be dealt with. We cannot walk in obedience if you have this trunk of junk in the back. So we have to confess our sins of disobedience first. And we know, we know through God's word that he is faithful to forgive us. He wants us to come to him and confess our sins and be washed clean. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He will do it. We have to go to him and confess our sins. And then we need to move on and be motivated to obey God. So start there. We also need to maintain a fresh disgust of sin. So when you first became a Christian, think about when that veil was lifted and you started to see sin the way God sees sin. And you saw your own sin, and it was, just, it was just disgusting, right? And then you looked out into the world, and you see all the sin, and it's just, you're just disgusted. It's fresh. It's, just, it's like an open wound. But over time, 
that sensitivity can kind of be dulled down a little bit. Over time, we can kind of become a little too comfortable with some sins that we maybe have in that little sin bin. You know, maybe just something like neglecting to love our neighbor as we should. It just doesn't seem like that big of a deal. Well, when you start getting too cozy with sin like this, I want you to think of this story. I want you to think of the septic guy. So my mom called me one day and she said, Ashley, you will never believe what I'm looking at right now. And I said, she lives in Illinois. And I said, what? And she said, well, the septic guy is here to clean the tank today. Now, if you don't know what a septic tank is, I'll give you a short little thing. It's when you're not on the city sewage system. So you have a tank buried in your backyard and all the things go there, okay? Uh, that's, you guys have eaten breakfast. That's all I'm gonna give the explanation. But basically, every three to five years, you have to get that cleaned out, emptied, cleaned. And there's a service that does that. There are people that do this for a living and I am so grateful for them. So our septic guy was there. And she said, she continues to tell me, you know, he, he took the lid off. And she even said, I, I can smell it in the house, okay? She's inside. And she says, he puts the hose down and he's doing his thing. And she goes, and then he goes to his car and he gets out a brown paper bag. And he walks back to the septic tank and he sits down and he's dangling his feet over the edge and he takes out his sandwich and just starts eating. She goes, I'm watching him eat his sandwich over the septic tank. And I'm just like, gross. I mean, how disgusting is that? And I think about this poor guy. I'm like, I bet on his first day on the job, he couldn't even keep his lunch down. And now here he is, eating a sandwich, legs dangling over a septic tank. Don't be the septic tank guy, <laughs> right? Don't be the septic tank guy. If that sensitivity to sin is dulled and we grow comfortable with it, we're no different than him. You know, if we want to maintain that fresh disgust of sin, we need to be in God's word because it's everywhere, because God is disgusted with sin and he tells us throughout his word. And a great place to really sit and meditate on is Proverbs. I mean, if you read the book of Proverbs, it's, it's a book of wisdom and it's telling us what not to do and what to do. Pretty much every verse is, don't do this, do this. Don't do this, don't do this. You know, verses like uh, Proverbs 12, 22, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. Think about that one. That's gonna keep it fresh. If you know something's an abomination to the Lord, you're not gonna do it. You're gonna obey. You should have an accountability partner. You should have somebody that you are regularly talking about with the areas that you are struggling because that accountability partner is gonna kind of rebuke you and push you and spur you on to obedience. Keep that sin fresh, not allow it to go hide onto the back burner, right? So we justify our sin if we're too comfortable with it. It, it doesn't stink as bad as it did in the beginning. It just doesn't. And, and if we're comfortable with our sin, our obedience will inevitably suffer. But lastly, we, we shouldn't be doing this alone. Obedience is something we should not be doing alone because if we're Christians in the room, we've been given the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I will send a helper. And if we are true Christians in the room, he lives inside of us. He dwells inside of us. And he's there to convict us of our sin. He's there to enable us to obey. He's there to guide us on the path of righteousness. I mean, without the Holy Spirit, it's truly impossible to obey God rightly. So we need to really depend on him. He's there to help. He's there to guide. Don't try to do it under your own power because you will fail.
because God knows that we're weak in the flesh, right? We are weak in our flesh, and he wants spirit-led obedience, because that's the only obedience that's accepted to him, acceptable by him. And Galatians 5.16 says, but I say walk by the spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, Galatians 5.16. We'll never obey perfectly, but in our lives, we should see our pattern of obedience grow and grow, and that pattern of transgressing lessen and lessen. Well, James really rounds out our passage today by giving us a reason to be motivated to love others and a way that we can demonstrate, another way we can demonstrate that we have authentic faith. James 2, verses 12 through 13, our last two verses today, says, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And as believers, we need to be examining our lives uh, for this obedience to the law of love because we will be judged. Uh, we will have to give an account as to what we've done and, to, and what we have said. And in 2 Corinthians 5.10, 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we, all, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. But this judgment does not condemn us. Right? This is the judgment seat of Christ. And because we are in Christ, there is no condemnation. But there will be rewards for our good deeds that we did while we were Christians. Now, the great white throne of judgment is reserved for those who are not in Christ. And they will face judgment and condemnation. For that reason, we need just to be grateful that we will not face that judgment. We need to be grateful for the mercy that was shown to us by God in forgiving our sins and making us right with him and a citizen of heaven with him. We need to speak and we need to act as one who has been shown great mercy. And that means to extend mercy to others. And it's gonna take effort. It's gonna take intentionality. So let's roll up our sleeves and get to point number three, which is work hard at showing mercy. Work hard at showing mercy. Verse 13 states, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And that word mercy, it means to show pity or compassion. It pairs really seamlessly with love your neighbor as yourself. Because if you're loving your neighbor as yourself, you will never leave you be showing pity and compassion on people. If we look back at that parable of the Good Samaritan, um, Jesus tells the parable, and then afterwards he asks the lawyer a question and he gives him a command. If you look at Luke 10, verse 36, this is how the parable ends. Jesus asked that lawyer, which of these three, speaking of the three men who passed by the injured man on the road, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer says, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. The Good Samaritan was motivated by mercy. We even see in the text, he had compassion on the man, right? And Jesus says, you go and do likewise. We are to hear this and we are to learn from it and imitate it. In James 1.22, we learned we're supposed to be doers of the word. So we need to go and be merciful towards others. What happens if we don't show mercy? It says in verse 12, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. In Matthew 18, there's another parable, I'll paraphrase it for you, uh, about the parable of the unforgiving servant. 
In Matthew 18, it talks about a servant who had a large debt owed to a king. And he goes to the king and says, give me more time and I'll pay you. And actually the king has mercy on him and he forgives him this giant debt. Well, then that same servant walks away, probably very relieved that he was forgiven the debt. And he sees his servant who owes him a small amount of money. And he demands that he pays it. And the man begs to have more time and he denies him mercy. And the king then hears about this and he's enraged because here he has given this man mercy and forgiveness for this great debt. And yet this man could not give it to somebody else. And so the man was thrown in jail, right? Jesus tells this story of this large debt and this, this guy could not find it in himself to forgive a debt of another. I mean, if you are not capable of showing mercy, if you are not characterized by showing mercy, if you cannot find it in your heart to forgive another, when you have been forgiven so much, there may be a good chance that you don't have authentic faith, that maybe you are deceiving yourself. And I hope that is not true of anybody in this room today. Let's just say, we just had Thanksgiving. I know that uh, you have family over and sometimes there's like, you know, differences of opinions on things. But let's just say you have a sibling, it's a brother. And during the COVID years, you, uh, you guys differed Im immensely on how to handle COVID, right? He was here, you were here. Um, and it was so bad that, that he refused to see you, uh, it, that the differences were so bad. And so it was so contentious. And now the dust has settled on that issue. It's Thanksgiving 2023, and he calls you up, and he says, hey, can I, can I come for Thanksgiving? And you sit there and think, well, after the way he treated me, I mean, he does not deserve to be there. So you tell him, you know what, after the way you treated me during COVID, no, no, you, you can't come for Thanksgiving. Hmm. The thing about mercy is that it is undeserved. It's never not undeserved. No one deserves mercy. We did not deserve it from God. So when we extend it to, to others, they don't deserve it either. If we wait around until we think someone deserves mercy, we will be waiting indefinitely because no one deserves it. Mercy is given freely to an undeserving person. Extending mercy to others shows that we truly understand the gospel. And not just in like a fact-based knowledge, I can recite it on command way, but a understanding that changes us from the inside and then will be demonstrated on the outside. It's a true understanding of the gospel if we can show mercy to others. If you have that understanding that you, then there's no debt that could be owed to you that is bigger than the debt that you owed to God. I mean, they're not even the same galaxies. So anything someone's done to you, whether it's a monetary debt or a relational debt or whatever it may be, it pales in comparison to the debt that you owed God. And when we understand that, we understand that mercy has to be forgiven, has to be given. But again, it's, it's not easy, right? Our emotions and our feelings get tangled in the way and it's something we're gonna have to work on. And one way that we can really keep this at the forefront of our minds is just to meditate on the character of God and his mercy and faithfulness. And it's all over scripture. And just a few, few things you can meditate on are Lamentations 3, 22 through 23. I know this is a very familiar verse. Uh, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. 
They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Isaiah 30, verse 18, therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Or 1 Peter 1, 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We need to reflect on scripture and see the character of God, which is a merciful God, if we want to be merciful to others. We also need to reflect on the mercy that we've been shown. Think back to your testimony. Think back to who you were prior to being alive in Christ. Think back to that person who was dead in their trespasses. Who was that person? And who is that person now? Reflect on those times, because it's going to bring the mercy that you were shown into the forefront, and showing mercy to others will be that much easier. Well, that documentary I watched, there was one story that really stood out among the rest, one survival story. And it was a story about somebody, uh, some people that survived the impact zone, meaning where the planes hit the buildings. And until I watched this, I had no idea anyone had actually survived that area, the impact zone, or anywhere above. I thought for sure everyone perished that day. But actually, 18 people made it out from the impact zone or above, and two of which were Brian Clark and Stanley Priamnath. Brian was a Canadian businessman who worked on the 84th floor in the South Tower, and Stanley worked on the 81st floor for Fuji Bank. They did not know each other before this day. Uh, the plane hit the South Tower between the 77th and the 85th floors, and so both of them were in what's called the impact zone. Uh, Brian <coughs> was able to actually survive that and get out onto the stairwell with a few coworkers, and so they started heading down the stairs to try and get out of the building. And they met a group of people once they hit the 81st floor that were coming up the stairs. And this group of people said, you can't go down. There's too much smoke. There's too much debris. You, you can't get down. We, we got to go to the roof. Or we can get rescued from the roof. And so he and his coworkers kind of pondered for a minute, like, do we go up? What do we do? Do we try to go down? And at that, at that instance, as this group of people were standing on this landing by the 81st floor, they hear screams coming from behind the door. There's someone screaming, help me. Help me, I can't breathe. Please, somebody come and help me. And so Brian immediately reacts, and he grabs one of his coworkers, and they head into the 81st floor. And it is full of smoke. They said they could actually see parts of the plane on the floor. The windows were blown out. Papers were flying everywhere. His coworker got so spooked, he just ran. So Brian was left alone. And he followed the man's voice, screaming for help. And he did find him, but he was over this wall, and he couldn't get to him. And he said, you're going to have to climb up this wall, and I can then pull you over. And the man said, I, I can't. I can't do it. And, and Brian said, think of your family. They, they want to see you today. Think of your family. Brian didn't know Stanley. He didn't know if he had a family, but it ended up that Stanley did. And so Stanley thought of his family, and that pushed him to get up to the top of that wall. And Brian pulled him over to safety. And Stanley said the first thing he could think to do was to kiss Brian on the cheek, because that's what you do if somebody <laughs> saves your life. And so then the decision was, do they go up or do they go down? Do they try and get rescued from the roof or do they try and make it down through the stairwell? And Stanley said, I think we should go down. So they started to make their way down the stairs and they did find a ton of debris, but they were able to push it aside and actually get through and all the way down the 80, 81 floors and out the building across the street. And three minutes later, the South Tower fell. So all those people that went up did not survive. 
Brian and Stanley survived that day because Brian simply had compassion. I'm pretty sure the other people on that landing heard Stanley's voice screaming, right? They heard the screams for help, but Brian had compassion. I mean, he risked his life, he risked uh, his safety, I mean, everything to just go and tend to a stranger that he couldn't even see. Brian and Stanley remain friends to this day. Well, as Christians, God calls us to love people at all times and to love all people. It shouldn't take something like a 9-11 for us to extend love to others. It should be something that we are known for. And if we take this law of love seriously and get serious about obeying it, we're to have authentic faith. We need to be characterized by this love because of the character of the God that we claim to love. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you, for, thank you so much for this impactful passage that you had us study this week. We thank you so much for just your law of love. We thank you that you call us to love, that we know it will be difficult, but you've given us everything that we need to do it right, Lord. You've given us the Holy Spirit. You've given us your word, Lord. I pray that each and every woman in this room would be strengthened today to love others more vigorously, to love others with more zeal. Lord, I pray that we would be known for a people that love, for a people that show mercy. I pray for discussion time today to be fruitful and rich as we ponder these truths and apply them to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.